Well, our story begins in the town of Ramah at the doorsteps of a cold and dark house. We've walked through the dirt paved roads and past the stone corridors, and we find ourselves here at the home of the prophet Samuel. And as we walk in, we don't hear much dialogue except for that of the self-deprecating conversation between Samuel and himself, words that I dare not repeat in church. As we take another step, there's this thick presence in the air of shame, and it lingers from the corner where Samuel sits. You see, Samuel was the people's pastor. He was the people's spokesperson, and he had a hand in selecting King Saul, who was the current king of Israel. And Saul has now completely turned his back on God. He's a a freight train of wickedness on the tracks to anywhere, but God's graced destination. And the weight of Saul's wickedness is carried on the back of Samuel. He feels as if he's let his people down. He feels as if he's let the whole nation, as if he's let his family himself and his God down. You ever been there? Felt like you failed, felt like you've disappointed people, felt stuck Well, as we walk into the house, we suddenly hear a voice, and this voice, it startles Samuel because, remember, he hasn't heard a voice other than his own in days. It's a voice that he's familiar with but always comes with a sense of of fright just for a moment. It's a voice that speaks powerfully yet gently. It speaks stern yet hopeful. It's a voice that comes almost with an invitation just beckoning you to listen. It's the voice of God. And he speaks to Samuel in this moment, in this darkness that he finds himself in. And he says, Samuel, get up. The time of sorrow is over. And so Samuel wipes his his wet nose. He rubs his red puffed eyes. He clears his scratchy throat. And he licks his dry lips. And he gets up. Reluctantly, but still, he gets up because Samuel knows that it is always darkest before the dawn, that in these moments of shame and brokenness, that God has hope and light around the corner that is just beginning to break through. And so Samuel gets up and he obeys the command from God to take the 10-mile journey south to a town called Bethlehem. And he finds himself at the doorstep of of another house, and this one, a farmhouse belonging to a faithful Jewish father named Jesse. And what Samuel just learned and what Jesse is about to find out is that in this house, in this forgotten town, this house belonging to this unknown family and this unimportant people is a son, one of Jesse's eight sons, who's going to be selected to be the next king of Israel who will succeed Saul after his death. And what God's going to do in this moment is he's going to pick up the pen to the story of redemption that he has been telling long before we got here, a story of redemption that started in a garden and trickled its way down into this moment with Samuel, into this house with Jesse, and into your moment right now, into your dark room into your waiting room, into your school, into your home, into your business place, into your heart, into your life. It's a story of redemption, and God is going to breathe life like a, like a fresh rain blowing through dead trees. He's going to bring a touch to what was once just a dream. It's redemption 
not just for Samuel or Israel or Jesse, but it's redemption for you and for me today. Well, welcome. If you're just joining us this weekend, I'm glad you're here. My name is Garrett. I'm the high school and college pastor here at River Glen. Uh, I just want to say welcome to everybody here in Waukesha, watching online or in Pewaukee. Can we just celebrate everybody who's here together uh, this weekend? Uh, I'm happy to be with y'all uh, this weekend as we continue week two of our Dark Room series. And Ben kicked off this series last week with a message on how God is Near. And I'm so excited for the series because I believe it's something that we can all relate to, right? This dark room uh, is, is something that in the photography or film world was something that was used to develop a photo. It's a process that the photo had to go through. And we actually have a, a, a dark room, in a sense, set up in our lobby here in the Waukesha campus. And so if, if you have a dark room or, or, or you're kind of going through this dark room moment and you want to just share that and, and maybe a moment of vulnerability and share with us kind of where you're at or, or maybe what God may be speaking to you in this dark room and, and what he's encouraging you with, I want to encourage you to, to check out the dark room in, in the Waukesha lobby um, and just share with us what it is that that dark room is for you. We all have dark rooms, right? And, and, and we talk about these characters. We're going to be talking about a different character each week and, and a dark room that maybe they had to go through. And this week, we're going to be talking about a guy named David. And, and David uh, gets selected to be the king of Israel. Sorry, spoiler alert. I just ruined the whole thing. Uh, David's going to get chosen to be the next king. But right now where our story is, he's just a, he's just a kid. He's just a boy. And, and he has to wait 20 years until he can take the throne. Imagine waiting 20 years for something that you've been hoping for, right? The boss lets you know, hey, you're getting that promotion. 20 years. It's all yours, right? We're cleaning out the office. Just going to take 20 years, man. Or, or, or ladies, right? You've been hoping that boy will get on his knee and ask the question. And he's like, babe, I love you. I'm getting the ring. Give me 20 years, all right? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask that question, all right? I'm going to propose. Like, that would be absurd, right? Waiting 20 years, and that's the dark room that David's going to eventually find himself in. And, and maybe you're in a dark room of your own. Maybe it's just this season of waiting or a season of wondering or a season of wandering and just hoping and, and, and asking God, God, where are you in this moment? And we want to unravel this idea because the dark room is not, is not a punishment. It's not God being neglectful. It's, it's him developing us in this process. And so I want us to lean into this idea of a dark room. And what we're going to be talking about this weekend is that character helps us endure the dark room. Character helps us endure the dark room. So I'm going to share three principles that I believe we can all apply to our lives right now, three things that we can develop in this moment. So I want to ask you, what is your dark room? What is your dark room? Think about that as we go into the rest of this story. The story is going to pick back up in 1 Samuel 16. We're starting in verse 6. You can follow along if you'd like. If not, it'll just be right here on the screen behind me. It says this, right? Samuel has now come to the house of Jesse, and he's about to, he's, he's about to select a king. And so Jesse's got all his boys ready. And Samuel's here. It says this, verse 6. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on his height, on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. 
For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesus called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. So Jesse gets all his boys ready, right? He, he, he's got all seven of his, of his sons, and, and, and God rejects seven of the eight. Sorry, not all of them, seven of the eight. God rejects them all. And here's the first principle that I want to share with you that I think we need to develop is that attitude is greater than ability. Attitude is greater than ability. Jesse's in this moment. It's like the typical dad trying to impress his boss, right, from work. And he's got all the boys out, you know, and he's got their comb over looking good. He's got the collar popped. He's like, boys, best behavior, okay? This is Mr. Samuel, and Samuel's going to make one of you the king, okay? So I need you to go. Strut your stuff. Show them what you got. So the boys are coming out, right, one by one, just showing what they got, right? And first, it's Eliab, and he's coming through, and, and Jesse's like, dude, it's got to be Eliab. He's the oldest. He's my oldest boy. We call him Eli for short. He's got his mama's looks, his daddy's arms. What's up? Get in there, champ. And Eliab walks in and Samuel's like, nah, bro, this ain't him. And so they're like, all right, who's next? All right, we got Abinadab. Abinadab's the cool one. You know, he's got some swagger. So he rolls in. Abinadab, right? He's, he's, he's kind of like the cool culture guy. So he walks in and they're like, no, definitely not because of that. So they get rid of Abinadab. And they're like, all right, who's next? Who you got next? And Jesse's like, all right, we got Shema. Shema can sing, right? Shema later became, uh, maybe, you, maybe you know him, Shemiah Twain. That was uh, his name. Oh, such a bad joke. Okay, we'll move on. But, but all these boys pass through one after the other, and Samuel keeps saying, no, God's not chosen this one either. Why? Because God was looking for a heart, and you can't blame Samuel, right? Samuel had just selected King Saul years before this. And King Saul, I mean, that dude is good. That dude's good looking. He's strong. He's tall. He's handsome. He's a warrior. He's going to be the next bachelor. Like, Saul is the dude, you know? And so Samuel is expecting the next king to look like the current king. And God is saying, hey, I'm not looking for ability. I'm looking for an attitude. I'm looking for someone with a heart. And we all in our lives depend on ability. We will, we will build our lives upon our weak shoulders and expect it to hold up. But God is saying, hey, I can do more with a strong heart than I can with your weak shoulders. And he's not looking for ability. He's looking for attitude. He's looking for a heart. And, and I get it, right? Ability is, is, is very important, especially in our culture today. Like if I just rolled up to the Pfizer Forum where the Milwaukee Bucks play and was like, hey, Giannis, what's up, bro? Uh, <laughs> I'm six feet tall, I'm way out of shape, and uh, I've never played organized basketball, but uh, I got your jersey and I love Jesus. Giannis isn't gonna be like, this is the guy. This is the guy. We need him on our team, right? That's not gonna happen, okay? <laughs> like, ability is helpful. Ability is important, but attitude is key. And God can do more with an attitude that says, God, I'm yours. God, I'm your servant. God, you're in control. Your command, God, rather than an attitude that says, I can do it on my own. You see, ability says that I'm too good for that. 
Attitude says it would be my honor to do that. Ability says, oh no, I can do it on my own, I'm all right. Attitude says you need a team or, or I need God with me in this. Ability says there's other volunteers for that. But attitude says, no, I'll, I'll welcome people in the cold to church. I'll, I'll set up the donuts in the morning or I'll clean up the diaper bombs in the nursery, right? That's, that's attitude. And we appreciate all of, of the volunteers here. And, and, and that's what God's looking for. He's, he's not looking for ability. He's not looking at, at man's standards. And we must be careful not to confuse the standards of man for the standard of God. Because God wants a heart. And, and, and what so many of us may end up doing is developing something that God doesn't really need and fall short where he desperately wants to use us. Pastor Levi Lusco put it this way. He said, when you only develop the things people see, you end up empty in the things that matter. Character will help you endure the darkroom. So develop your attitude, not your ability. The story picks back up in 1 Samuel uh, 16, now at verse 11. It says, Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. Where was David during the party, right? All the boys are hanging out with Samuel. They're about to eat. It's this whole party. And David wasn't even invited to the party. Like the dude is out in the field doing chores singing with the sheep and frolicking in the field. Like he's not even there. He doesn't even care. Here's the thing. David didn't need to be invited to the party to be validated because he already had validation from his heavenly father. And David chose, second principle that, that we need to develop is that obscurity is greater than discovery. David knew that obscurity was greater than discovery. And this is so opposite of our culture, right? We, we, we want to be discovered. We want to be known. We want to be a part. We want to be invited to the party, right? I know I do. I have FOMO. I have bad FOMO. You know what FOMO is? Fear of missing out, all right? F-O-M-O, FOMO, fear of missing out. I have FOMO, right? I want to be included. Just invite me. You know, this literally happened yesterday. My buddies who live in California, they go golfing all the time, and it's like always golf weather there, you know? And so they're out golfing, and I'm like... It looks so pretty. And I'm like, I'll comment on Instagram and I'll be like, oh, sick invite, boys. And they're like, bro, you live in Wisconsin. Like, what are we supposed to do about this? And I'm like, well, just invite me. Just notice me. I want to be included. Like, I'll fly. I'll go go. I'll catch you on the back nine. I don't care. Like, what? you know, like, I want to be included. We want FOMO. We want, to, we want to get the likes. We want to get the share. We want the recognition for the things we've done. We want people to notice us. We want to be discovered for our great gift. We want everyone to recognize, hey, I did this great thing. We need everybody to know all of the things that we've learned and the things that we know. We need to post about our amazing vacation and update them on all of our big life adventures because we seek discovery. We are chasing man's approval. We need to get discovered. And we so desperately want to avoid obscurity, but that's not like Jesus at all. Right? If you look at Jesus' life and the way he lived uh, for his specifically three years on ministry, you know the geographical size of his ministry, where he hung out and did most of his stuff, would have been like Pewaukee Lake. That's it. 
like King of Kings, Jesus Christ, Son of God, could have snapped his fingers and been anywhere in the known world at the time, but he chose to hang out at Pewaukee Lake and chill and meet people. And then he goes to Jerusalem, which is essentially just like going to Milwaukee. So he spends his whole time at a lake and then at a kind of big city. And then, better yet, he, he would perform these miracles and do these amazing things. And then he'd tell people, hey, don't tell anyone. Jesus chose obscurity. He wasn't seeking discovery. Obscurity is how the Bible begins, too. In, in Genesis, that's how the Bible starts, is with obscurity, right? God creates Adam and Eve, and he gives them a very simple uh, job, a very simple task, best job in, in the world, really. He creates Adam and Eve in the garden. He says, hey, I want you to be gardeners. I want you to take care of pets, and I want you to be fruitful and multiply. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's it. That's, that's all you got to do. That's, that's the job. Like, pretty good gig right there, okay? That's, that's all he's asking you to do. It's a pretty simple yet very valuable task. And it's not until the serpent, until the devil shows up and starts convincing them or tricking them that they should want more, that there is more for them. And they start to question everything God told them. It says this in Genesis chapter three, starting verse one. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst, in the middle of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, oh, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Notice how it says the woman saw that the tree was good. The woman saw that it was Good. The whole creation narrative in Genesis 1 depicts God creating the earth, creating each thing specifically and intentionally. And then it ends with it, with it saying, and God saw that it was good. God makes this thing, and then he declares with his eyes, God saw that it was good. It's the same exact language just two chapters later. God saw that it was good, and the woman looked at this fruit, and, and she saw that it was good good. Here's the issue. The issue begins when we start looking through our own lens to decide what is good. And, and, and we look through our own eyes for our own selves, for our own fleshly desires, and, and we start to decide what is good rather than looking through the lens of God who had already declared something good. The eyes of God who said, I've already given you enough fruit. I've already given you all of these trees that you can have. And it's not until the devil shows up and feeds them this lie, and he's been feeding us the same lie for all of our lives. That what we do is not valuable unless you get affirmation from it, unless you get accepted by the world, unless man deems it 
good rather than what God has deemed good. Just because it's simple doesn't mean it's not valuable. And so we feel like we need more money. We feel like we need more followers. We feel like we need a better job. We feel like we need more of this and, and, and more of this. Let me ask you something. When was the last time that you did something for nothing? No recognition, no, 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 no likes, no approval. When was the last time you did something for nothing? You just did it. There's this, this book that my grandpa gave me. It's, uh, it's called The Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. And uh, it was the book that him and my, my grandma read together at summer camp in high school, the summer that they met. And he gave me this book, and, and it was written by uh, Brother Lawrence, who was a lay brother in a Carmelite monastery in the early 1600s. And he writes about finding God in the simple and mundane and ordinary and obscure moments of life, like doing the dishes after breakfast or sweeping the monastery floor. And the interesting thing is that Brother Lawrence didn't write this book in hopes that it would be regarded as one of the most spiritually formative books ever, but that's what it became. But that wasn't his intention at all. Matter of fact, he didn't even really write the book. The book is just a collection of talks or a collection of letters that he wrote that someone else put together. He wrote this. He said that we ought not to be weary of doing the little things for the love of God who regards not the greatness of the work, but the love with which it is performed. God is not looking for people who want to be discovered and known. He's looking for people who want him to be known and people who can just be found faithful in the field. David was found faithful in the field, right? And, and God had to find David faithful in the field before he could be trusted in the palace. And so, so that's my question for you is, is, can God find you faithful in the field that you're at? See, so many of us want palace before the field. We, we want the thing that we're working for before actually going to the field and, and working for it, right? But can God find you faithful in the field where he's placed you now before the palace, whatever that palace is for you. Maybe, maybe you're, you're in this moment area of life of singleness and, and you're asking God for a spouse, right? And, and you want a spouse and God's saying, hey, can I find you faithful in the field right now of singleness, living a mature and, and, and pure life before the spouse ever comes? Or maybe you're asking God for more finances and, and to bless you with this raise that you've been praying for. And God's saying, hey, can I find you faithful in the field of finances right now? Are you being a good steward and manager of your money now? Are you tithing on what I've already blessed you with before anything else comes? Maybe, maybe you're waiting for that job offer or an offer from a school to get in, and, and, and God's saying, I just want to find you faithful now in the moment that I've placed you in, before anybody else notices you, before discovery ever happens, before you can be trusted in the palace, God wants to find you faithful in the field. And here's the thing. So many of us will, will miss out on the palace because we didn't want to be found in the field. We didn't even want to go to the field. And we'll miss out on the palace. Or, or here's the other thing that, that, that I, I need you to get, and I need to get this, is that 
Sometimes the palace doesn't come. Maybe for some of us, the palace is not on this side of heaven. Maybe where you're at right now in life, maybe God has placed you in this moment of life and and this is the best it's gonna get. And maybe you were called to suffer now for a palace that that you will not experience until after, right? Uh, Until the end. And that's okay. Here's why. Because we're not doing it for man. I'm not doing it for man's thumbs up or approval or the likes or the retweets or the follows or the shares. We're not doing it for the accolades or the awards or the the participation trophy. I'm doing it for God. I'm doing it so that my heavenly father at the end of my life, as I limp my way into heaven and straggle my way in, the world may beat me up and there may be some suffering. I may still have some chains to show, but, but, but I'm waiting for God's approval that says, well done, my good and faithful servant. I found you faithful in the field. I am well pleased with you. You chose to live simple and to endure the hardships that this life came. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And he is faithful to the end, even if we don't see it now. So live an obscure and mundane and simple life because there's nothing wrong with that. If the greatest thing you ever do is go to work, Clock in, work hard, clock out, head home, love your family, love your neighbor, and serve God, you're doing a pretty fantastic thing, and you're living just like Jesus, and he says, that's enough. That's all I'm looking for is faithful servants who will choose and seek obscurity. Character will help you endure the dark room. So focus on obscurity rather than discovery. You see, David, he gets called in from the field, right? And he eventually gets selected to be king. And Samuel anoints him and chooses him to be the next king of Israel. David is about 10, 15 years old at this point. And, he, and the Bible tells us he doesn't become king until he's 30. So he waits about 20 years to take the throne from the moment of appointing or from the moment of anointing to the moment of appointing. And so many of us assume that those two things are supposed to go together, that, that, that anointing comes right, after, right before appointing and that it's going to happen just like that. See, I imagine that after David was selected to be king, they probably partied all night and ate a ton of food and then he eventually fell asleep, probably couldn't fall asleep at first, but eventually goes to bed and he woke up, washed his face, he grabbed his staff, and he went back to work with the sheep until God called him to his next thing. He was waiting, and he waited on God. The third and and, and final principle is that waiting is greater than rushing. Waiting is greater than rushing. Waiting on God and trusting the process is greater than rushing. And, and, and we hate waiting, right? Like we don't have to wait in, in, in this world. We can get some things pretty quick. Who hates waiting? Who's like pretty impatient? It's okay. You can confess. It's church, right? Me too, right? But, but there's some things, right, that we can get pretty instantly. You know what I mean? Amazon Prime, same day delivery, which is kind of creepy, honestly. But, and, and, and maybe if you're feeling patient, I'll endure some suffering, Lord. I'll do the two-day shipping. That's okay. 
right? And, and, and you wait two days. Oh my gosh, what a drag, right? And, and there's no commercials anymore, right? You got Netflix, you got Hulu, Disney Plus, whatever, right? You don't have to wait for commercials. Like some kids these days, they will never know that angst and that agony of commercial starts and you've got about a few minutes to beeline it to the bathroom, go pee, hurry to the fridge and grab a snack and, and, and run back to your brother's beckoning call of, it's back on and you gotta hop the couch and get there before the show starts again. <sighs> I'm stressed out and sweating just thinking about it. Jeez. God, but it's okay. I'm going to play for the Bucks. No, so, all right. But <laughs> we don't have to wait. But God, let me, let, me, let me encourage you with this. God is known for the wait, and he does some of his best work in waiting periods. It, it reminds me of a French press coffee. Who, who's had or enjoys some good French press Coffee. All right, all right. So what we'll do here, we'll, uh, we'll start our water here. And uh, you want to start the water, get it boiling hot. The difference between a French press and let's say like a coffee pot is that there's no filter. So you're literally just going to put grounds in the bottom and then you'll pour hot water over the grounds to let them bloom nice and slowly. It's a beautiful process, but it takes a while, right? So we'll get our grounds. Water's getting ready. And, all right, perfect. You know what, we like it strong. All right, there we go. <laughs> Throw it in there, come on. That's a Monday morning kind of cup. All right, so we got our grounds ready. The water, pretty hot. Let's do this, here we go. Oh, yes, all right. What you wanna do with, with French press is pour it slowly, like I mentioned, right? There's no filter. So you're literally just pouring the water over the grounds, <laughs> but it's a process, right? I'm, I'm not going to rush it, right? I got to enjoy this, this cup of coffee. And maybe this isn't your kind of coffee. Maybe you're more of like that instant, instant little packet from Walmart, right? If this is your go-to coffee, let me bless you with some French press, okay? I'm not trying to hate on anybody, but let me bless you with some French press, right? We don't need no more instant coffee, right? So you pour the water over the grounds. I'm going to go a little faster just because I know you're all sitting there freaking out, just so impatient, right? Amazon Prime style. Oh, we're splashing. Okay, here we go. All right. Is it done? No, it's not. Now we're going to stir, obviously, wooden spoon, not metal spoon because you don't want to break the glass. Boom, boom, boom. Let's wipe some of the grounds off. And then, are we done yet? No. We're going to let it sit here for a little bit, put this back on, get your lid, and then you let it sit. And you wait for your coffee to sit and get prepared. And this is what it feels like for some of us, right? This whole waiting period. This is what it feels like. Us waiting on God, and, and, and maybe it's your job right now. Maybe you've just graduated, or you're in a position, and you feel like, hey, God, this wasn't really my dream job. Like, I had bigger dreams. I had bigger plans, and God's saying, hey, hey, just, just wait, all right? It, it's okay. You may be entry level. You may be an intern or whatever, but just wait. It's okay, right? It, it's all about the process and trusting God in the way. Maybe it's a dream that God gave you for your business, and it was going to grow and, and thrive, and, and you're not there yet, and, and, and God's saying, hey, just wait, all right? I'm doing something. I'm, I'm developing 
something. And, and it's this whole waiting period. Maybe it's some finances that you're waiting to get together. And you're like, you're like God, we really want to buy a house. We, we don't have the money yet to buy a house. Or, or we really want to start a family. Or, or I, I, I want to get this car, God. Whatever it is, so many of us find ourselves in this waiting moment, in this dark room of waiting. And, and we're sitting here just like, God, Come on, hurry up. Like, are we done yet? I, I don't want to wait anymore. I'm, I'm ready. And God said, just trust me. And, and, and we start to believe lies from the devil that God is neglectful and that he's distant and that he's not near and that he's not in the midst of our waiting. But that is such a lie. He is literally in the midst of every moment that you may find yourself in. It may be dark. It may be cold. It may feel lonely. It may feel like it's never going to end. But God is saying, I am in the midst of it all, and I am with you. And we've got to trust the process that God is developing something. He's not, he's not neglectful. He's not hurting it. This isn't punishment. He's just developing us. The Bible says that he is not a man that he should lie. And every promise from God ends in yes and amen. And so in the midst of your waiting and your struggle, we need to cling to what the Bible says. He is our hope and an anchor for our soul. And hold on to that anchor. And it's going to take some French press faith for us to get through this process and for us to get through the struggle. There may be some stirring. There may be some waiting. There may even be some pressing and some moments that we don't really enjoy and they hurt us. But can I just encourage you that God... God may be doing his best work in your moment of waiting, that he may be doing something spectacular, that he may be brewing something fantastic in your life. And God is saying, I'm not done. I'm not distant. I'm just developing you. I love you. And the Bible says he has plans for you and they are for you to prosper. Come on, it's going to take some French press faith for us to trust God in this time. And he's brewing something spectacular in each of our lives. Amen? Amen. Cheers. That's pretty good coffee right there. <laughs> Character will help you endure the dark room. So don't rush God. Wait on God because his timing may not make sense, but it's always perfect. And he is faithful to deliver and develop in the end. We're gonna go into a time of worship and, and communion. And the, and the band is gonna play a song called Take Courage. And the lyrics say, take courage, my heart. Stay steadfast, my soul. He's in the waiting. Can I just encourage you to lean in to this moment? To let these lyrics just rush over you? And then the team is gonna pass communion and I wanna challenge you, don't take it. Don't take communion, just hold it, all right? Just wait and, 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 and listen to these lyrics and, and hold the, the double cup with the bread and, and the juice and, and we're gonna all take it together, right? So just wait for, for instruction, but just sit in this moment and lean into maybe what it is that God is speaking to you about your dark room. And maybe it's one of these principles that he wants to develop in you in this process. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, I recognize that the weight isn't pretty. <laughs> and oftentimes it's, it's, it's hard and it's difficult and it, and it doesn't make sense. 
But God, I pray for each person in here. God, whatever they came in carrying, whatever they came in struggling with, whatever their dark room may be, God, I pray that you would right now make yourself known. God, that they would just be overwhelmed, not with the fullness of their schedule, God, but with the fullness of your love for them. God, that they wouldn't be overwhelmed with the stress and anxiety of this world, that they wouldn't be overwhelmed with what's next or the fear of tomorrow, but God, they would be overwhelmed with a peace and a joy that comes from you. So God, I pray that we would just all lean in to this moment. God, that you would rush over us and comfort us in the dark room. And God, we would see the dark room not as a punishment or a place to hate, but God, a place to endure and a place to develop and a place where you so closely whisper, I love you, my child. It's gonna be okay. We'll get through this together. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.